In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Hey, everybody. This is Doug Robertson of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution with another edition of the Southern Fried Soccer Podcast. Thanks, as always, for joining me. Thanks, as always, for your downloads and listens and shares. You can find me on Twitter at Doug Robertson AJC, on Facebook at Atlanta United News Now, and I hope that you will consider subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Today's topic is Atlanta United's win-o defeat to Columbus in the MLS tournament in Orlando on Tuesday. It was Atlanta United's third consecutive loss in the tournament, fourth consecutive across all competitions, fourth consecutive time the team has been shut out, it's now been 395 minutes of just regulation time since Atlanta United last found the net, and that was Emerson Hyman in the 55th minute against Cincinnati way back in March. Um, Tuesday's defeat had a lot of the same elements as the defeat against Cincinnati in the previous game and the defeat against Red Bulls in the opening game of the tournament. And here to join me to talk about all that is Jason Longshore of 92.9 FM and Soccer Down Here. Dot net. What's up, Doug? That was uh, not so much fun last night, huh? No, uh, to me, it looked a lot like uh, a lot of the other games. It reminded me a lot of a lot of the games from last year early in the season. Um, to me, it looked like they didn't really quite know what they were doing on offense. They didn't quite know what they were doing on defense. They always looked outnumbered on either end of the field. Uh, you know, DeBoer's Lineup choices were interesting. The substitution choices were really, really interesting. And you add it all together, and it's a team that uh, doesn't look anything close to what won the U.S. Open Cup or Campionas Cup or MLS Championship. No, it, it doesn't. And, you know, I, this is not an easy thing to, I think, define at this point because it's not one thing. That's the, the hardest element of it is it's not – one thing there's a lot of different things that are factoring into this uh you know struggling to score goals you can't avoid the question of would it be better if joseph martinez was there i think it's fair to say that it would how much better we don't know um it looks disjointed the first half was i'm trying to think of another half that was at that level and i can't come up with one um the goal Columbus scored was way too easy. It was very passive in terms of defending at that point. Atlanta had a lot of the ball early, but it didn't lead to anything. It didn't get better after the goal either in the first half. And that was maybe the most concerning element for me is the slow response because there was one, the second half was better. And, and maybe it's because of the fresh legs and, you know, a player like John Gallagher making his MLS debut and playing a hybrid 
kind of position. I mean, he came on for Fernando Meza. He looked like a center back at times, which he had never played before that I know of, uh, but was also bombing forward and making things happen, which wasn't happening in the first half. So formation, position or not, John Gallagher brought some life to the game in the second half. I thought Eric Rometty brought some life to the game in the second half as well, even at the end when I don't know if he, he cramped up or he was kicked in the calf, but he was hardly able to move towards the end, but still won a couple of late free kicks. Second half was fine in terms of energy. It was hectic. It was frantic. There wasn't a whole lot of coherence to a, a, a planned way of playing in that second half. But I'll take that over what we saw in the first half anytime because the first half was bland. And that's not what we're accustomed to seeing from Atlanta United. Now, I don't frankly put a lot of stock in the second half. I don't think – I mean, Columbus had a one-goal lead. I don't think it was at all worried that Atlanta United was going to score uh, based upon what they've seen in the first half of the previous two games. And so uh, they, they, they kind of like, – I think that, off that's a little bit. harsh. I, I, and, and that's one thing that – I think it's tough about all this because the first half was that bad to where I think it's coloring the second half. There were, don't have the stat sheet in front of me. I think four or five shots on goal, 11 chances created. There were no chances created in the first half. The second half was better. The second half didn't have a plan to it because it was all about some effort and some just guys trying to make something happen, which I'll take over the first half, but it's not good enough in the long run. But the whole game wasn't 90 minutes of the first half. And I don't know if that's necessarily fair to the, the players who did give you everything in the second half because it looked different. It needed to look different sooner. There needed to be that kind of response to go find something, honestly, from the opening whistle, but especially after you concede a goal and fall behind. I didn't say they didn't try. I just said Columbus no, no, I know, wasn't, I know. wasn't trying hard. I don't think it was harsh. I think it was – very fair considering the results no, and everything. I, I don't want to. I don't, um, I don't want to. I don't want to argue with you. I want to make it clear. Like I think it's. It's not that you're not saying they didn't try. It's to say that they didn't do anything. I think they produced plenty in the second half. Eleven chances created in a half is good production. You didn't get a goal to show for it, so it ultimately doesn't matter. But it was different, and maybe we're looking for small steps, but it was different, and it was better in the second forty-five. There were quite a few, uh, for lack of a better word, damning things that happened uh, both in the game and after the game. The lack of urgency that the team showed in the first half was stunning to me, considering this was a knockout game. They had to win to have any hope of advancing and to come out and just pass the ball sideways and backward over and over and over again was bizarre to me. They, you know, Adam John got another run out as striker and once again got absolutely no service in the first half and then got pulled at halftime, which again was quizzical to me. Um, after the game, DeBoer saying that he couldn't make first half adjustments, uh, that the team couldn't make adjustments on the field, to which I said, well, you know, you've said you've worked on in-game adjustments during the team training in Marietta. You worked on it in between games, so why couldn't you make the adjustments? And he said possibly because Jeff Lerunowitz, you know, didn't start. And it's like, well, whose responsibility is it to start Jeff Lerunowitz? It was a it was a weird, weird game. Putting Gallagher in at center back in an elimination game, a position he's never before played, 
when he had Anton Walks and George Campbell on the bench. Another just kind of bizarre thing to me. I, I really don't know quite what to make of all this. Oh, no, I don't either. Uh, I'm right there with you. Um, the first half, the, the lack of that effort, spark, whatever you want to call it in the second half that we saw, for that not to be there in the first half when you know it's a must-win match and, you know, in a perfect world you're, you're winning by a couple of goals, you know there's that pressure coming into the opening whistle. It, it doesn't make any sense. And that's maybe the biggest question I have coming out of the whole tournament is why wasn't that intensity there from the opening whistle? And then where did it go after you conceded? Because it didn't change. You know, sometimes you, you see teams that, that need to get smacked in the face before they get going. Atlanta United hasn't typically been that team. But when you're in a must-win game and you come out flat and then you give up a goal and it takes 20 minutes until you started to see anything that you could hang your hat on, you know, late in the half, you started to see some movement between the lines. You started to see uh, Emerson Hindman split the two defend the two holding midfielders in Nagby and Artur to get on a pass. You started to see a little something, but it took way too long for it to happen, and it wasn't enough. Uh, the Adam John situation was baffling to me. I thought they would use him more after the first few minutes where he got a couple touches. He showed what he could do as a target nine knocking the ball down, bringing others into the play, playing some one-twos. After that, he barely saw the ball. You didn't see any attempt to bring him into the game at that point. And then pulling him at halftime, the, the attack got better, but it's a combination of the two things that, that we're saying. Desperation kicks in, and Columbus is comfortable, so they can sit a little bit deeper and concede that possession. The Gallagher sub is one of the strangest things I've ever seen. Um, I don't know what the game plan was at that point because, you know, from my experience with John Gallagher and called all his appearances with Atlanta United two at home and watched them all on the road, uh, kept up with him at Aberdeen pretty closely. He's played a lot of positions as a professional. He had never played center back and to play that kind of center back where he had free license to go. And he did, and he took full advantage of it. And he, he worked his tail off. I'll give John Gallagher a ton of credit for you know, doing the best he can with that situation, but you're right. There were other options to replace Fernando Meza, who appeared to be injured at the end of the first half, wasn't comfortable moving, and you needed to make a sub. Gallagher was the last player I would have expected. It led to some nervy moments because you're bombing everybody forward, which, again, you're down. That's to be expected. But why not a traditional center back and use Gallagher in a different position? I don't know. I don't know what the, the, the idea was there. It didn't make a whole lot of sense in, in my book. Now, and the other curious thing about it is Gallagher has played wing back. So yeah. they could have gone to a back four, for example, and played Gallagher at left fullback and pushed Bellow up to midfielder, which is probably actually – a a better position for him at this point. It's kind of the way it played um, out, but that's not the way it looked yeah, when they went it's back. Just, to it, 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 just didn't, it didn't make any sense. The, the inability of the three center backs to play together is bizarre to me because the team yeah. played three center backs a lot last year. And two of these three played a lot together mm -hmm. last year. And Fernando Meza is not a dummy. He can play. Uh, you don't start in Liga MX if you're not a good player. 
So that's not it. Um, but there's something about the three center backs playing together. They can't stay together as the a communication group. is uh, yeah, just completely a, non-existent on the field. You know, Mo Adams letting the it was Mo Mo Adams did not track uh, Mukhtar on the goal. Um, you know, I like Mo as a person. I don't see what Frank sees in training because we don't get to see training. But he and Emerson cannot be paired together anymore in the center of the midfield. Emerson. Emerson is not a true defensive midfielder. He is a bridge kind of a midfielder or an attacking midfielder. And so he and Mo aren't kind of working well together in terms of splitting the lines and getting the ball and getting forward like Lorenowitz and Heinemann last year or Rometty and Heinemann last year. That's just another of the many, many things about this game that I just did not understand. I'm right there with you on that. Uh, there's – We've talked about it with the three-four-three before, and the midfield pairing is maybe the most vital piece to make it work because they have to be in sync in the way that everything is covered. And we haven't seen that in this tournament between any of the pairings. It's looked disjointed every match. And when you go back and look at the goals, and, and look, you've conceded one goal a game. The defense is not falling apart. That's what's so frustrating about it is the goals that you're conceding are very bad goals for a good defense. And, and it doesn't make sense. The midfield's part of it. And you mentioned it with Heinemann and Adams. Adams is more defensive than Heinemann, but they're both guys who can, pull, who can do all the roles of a central midfielder. They can get forward when they need to. They can drop. But they're not doing it with any balance right now. And that's what's lacking with this group. And what happens when the midfielders are out of balance is your back three gets pulled apart. And that's what we've seen far too often where it looks like Fernando Meza, and it happened in this one, it happened on the goal against Red Bulls, where he's on an island because everything else is tilted because the back three is trying to cover for other things and they're getting pulled out of position. There's no communication. And that's been the number one thing. It's hard for us because we're not there. We're not hearing everything on the field. We're not seeing everything off the ball. But you can tell by the way these plays are happening, the communication is not there right now. And I don't know if that's supposed to come down to Brad Kazan, if that's supposed to come down to Fernando Meza or Miles Robinson or Franco Escobar. But there's no communication and people are getting pulled out of position way too easily with movement from the opposition off the ball and passes that Columbus sequence for the goal. I mean, Atlanta was a passenger in the whole sequence. No one stepped up to organize. It was like 17 consecutive passes or something that Columbus completed. And frankly, they weren't pressured on, on most of them. No. That um, was the shocking element. They weren't pressured. Yeah. And I don't think there's any leadership on the field right now. And Brad Guzan is a leader, but he's not out in the field. There has to be somebody out in the field where everybody can hear what's being said to kind of get the guys organized and, and fired up, frankly. Um, and, I mean, that is not Miles Robinson. That's not Franco Escobar. That's just not their personalities based upon what, mm -hmm. you know, Agreed. I've seen from many conversations with them. Uh, it could be Fernando Meza. You know, last year it would be LGP or it would be Lorenowitz. Uh, Parkhurst, when he was there, um, there's just nothing. It's not coming from Pitti, who said he was trying to take on more of a leadership role. 
uh, it's not it's his not, personality it's either. not coming from Barco and we'll get to those two in a minute um, but this team has some has some giant issues and, and you know part of it is Frank's tactics I think part of it is and I tweeted this last night the construction of the roster um, you I, I, I don't think anyone can say with 100% confidence that Pitti and Barco have worked out at Atlanta United and there are the two DPs and when two of your three DPs aren't playing consistently well, a team is going to have some trouble that you look at the other signings. I mean, the last, I think, you know, three-star signing the team made was Darlington Nagby. Um, and he's no longer with the team. The rest have been kind of glue guys. Some of them, I think the team is overpaid for, frankly, um, but they have not had an impactful signing since Nagby. And that's a problem, particularly in a, in a salary cap slash budget league uh, in MLS. Yeah, it's a little hard to go back and say that they shouldn't have signed Barco for what they did because they weren't the only team in for him. No, no, uh, I totally agree with that. But it just, yeah. it's not, it's, I, it, I don't know what the reason is, but it's just Barco's not, a little it's different not working. He's a different conversation in all of this to me. Um, he's looked a little sluggish in the tournament. I don't think he's 100%. He took a knock in training before game one. He hasn't looked 90 minutes fit. He's earning free kicks, which is a very good thing to do. He's getting fouled consistently. Seven free kicks earned last night, a lot in dangerous positions. But that's all he's contributing at the moment. Yeah, it's not worth it's 15 million bucks. <laughs> well, again, we've talked about it. That price tag's for the future sale, which has had interest. So, you know, that's that plays into it with him. Pitti Martinez has not been the South American player of the year, Pitti Martinez, that we saw. It's been too inconsistent. I think to say it's been a bust is not fair, but he hasn't been transcendent. And when you're missing Joseph Martinez right now, you need a player that you brought in like that to be transcendent. You have to have somebody do it. And you haven't gotten it. And I think some of it is the tactics because right now they are – playing like it's a normal July where you've had a bunch of games and a bunch of training sessions and everything is fluid and players are interchanging. That hasn't been the case. This is essentially going back to, you know, game three of the season where you see teams develop as a year goes on. And right now this team almost is trying to play in midseason form and there's no way they can be there because of the stop start nature of it. They need to simplify things. And I kept expecting that in this tournament after we saw game one where it was a bad start. It did get better. You did have chances. You didn't convert. But there were things that you could see that I thought just needed to be simplified. We didn't get a chance to see that against Cincinnati because of the way it played out. The red card changed everything. But in this one, there wasn't anything different to start except for Adam John. But then you didn't really use him. Right. And it was frustrating. And you're not getting the best out of the talent on the field right now, in my opinion. So it's hard to even judge, are they talented enough? Because I don't think you're getting anything out of the group you have right now. Right. To, pity to me um, looks like what we saw two-thirds of last season, the first two-thirds. Um, he's, I'm not sure what his role is supposed to be. I don't know if he knows what his role is supposed to be. Uh, there was a, a moment last night uh, in the second half. He got the ball near the corner of the penalty box, had two defenders, and I told my stepson, watch, he's going to shoot. 
from here. An impossible angle with zero chance of scoring. And sure enough, he spun and shot, and it was saved uh, easily. Um, you know, there was a pass in the first half. He finally had the ball in space, could have moved forward, and instead he tried like a 40-yard touch pass uh, to a winger, and it was easily saved by the goalkeeper. He's just trying things that he just doesn't need to try. He's trying well, but, too but hard. But this is where you get stuck sometimes for a guy like Pitti because nothing's happening. So if you're the guy, if and he is right now in this team, he's the one that people are expecting to deliver, and there's nothing happening. There's not any options going forward. There's not any movement to play a, a guy in. He's got to try things that are spectacular to make anything happen, and they're not coming off either. I mean, you know, he's a player who last night created five chances in the second half. That looks great. He did create some things. He also turned the ball over too easily in some spots because he's trying – at times too hard to make something spectacular happen. But I think some of that is a function of obviously missing Joseph Martinez. You, you can't ignore it, but also just the fact that you haven't found a way to be dangerous in the final third, whether it's Pitti, Barco, or whoever else is paired up with them. There, there's not a whole lot to work with. And that's the frustrating element is that part hasn't changed since we saw the injury to Joseph and since the team's been together in Orlando. Well, a, a couple of uh, counters to that. When Pitty played simply the last third of last year and the first couple of games this year, he, he looked really good. Now, I, the pressing to me, because you don't have teammates making runs, is the opposite of what you want because you're just giving the ball back over again every time. You, you can play simply um, when you have somebody to play off of. And, well, and when you don't, The, the two things I you. mentioned last night, he did, and he chose not to. Um, and, and the second is LAFC scored seven goals without Carlos Vela. I mean, it's, it can be Different done. Different situation, Doug. It I'd, can um, be done. No, of course it can be done. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm telling you that there's a lot of things wrong here. But you're also comparing Columbus, who has been best team in the tournament, best two or three, I think at least. Uh, Red Bulls team that is based defensively that knows you well and is a much better defensive team than the Galaxy or the Houston Dynamo could ever be. And Cincinnati, who packed everybody in and had the benefit of a first half red card, LAFC's group and Atlanta's group, it's not the same. Um, last year, the team tried the 3-4-3 and it didn't work. Had the team meeting, went to kind of a 4-1-4-1 kind of a thing. Do you think Frank is going to stick with this formation, particularly with Jurgen Dam coming and, and he's more of a wide uh, attacking player? Uh, so I don't know where you'd fit in this formation. Yeah, I don't right know. Now. That's that's a good question. I don't and, know. And um, Eric Lopez, if MLS even allows Atlanta United to bring him up from loan from Atlanta United too. Right. That's That part's the great unknown. It's going to require a rule change, which had been hinted at by some of the national writers a while back, and we haven't heard anything else about it with – extended loan opportunities from USL to MLS. I don't know what the shape's going to look like going forward. Um, it, it's got to be different because this shape, you don't have the personnel to get the most out of it. And like I said, you've got to simplify things. Where does Dom fit? Uh, typically he's played out wide. I wonder if he could be an attacking player centrally for this team right now and affect games with his speed. Keep it simple. Try to play him through. Try to play over the top. I'm not 100% sure there. You got to see how he blends into the team. Last year, you went through 3-4-3 at the beginning. Then you shifted to a 4-2-3-1 when Franco Escobar came back from injury. 
then that got stale. You also had the match in Seattle where Breck Shea was injured. Franco Escobar was suspended after that. And you didn't have any outside backs. And you went to the 3-5-2 that at times played like a 3-4-3. And you go back and you look at the game in Portland, the game against New York City, and the team played in a very similar way to how it's played this season with Fitzy and Barco tucked in underneath the forward, more of like that 3-4-2-1 that we've seen this season. You bounced around a lot last year. This year you haven't. And that's something that I think needs to change. And maybe it's down to the way this season has gone from a training perspective. I don't know. It did take some time for them to start changing that last year. And it became more prevalent for tactical changes at the end of the year as opposed to at the beginning. But this fit with this group right now is not clicking. So you have to do something different. I don't know if Jurgen Dom's inclusion into what we've seen so far in Orlando is going to change it by itself, just a player. I think you're going to have to re-envision a little bit about the way this team can be dangerous in the final third. That's the number one issue. Yeah, I don't know whose spot uh, Dom takes either. Um, it, it's not obvious. Um, so it's going to be curious. And the other thing about you, you mentioned uh, the, the switching formations. Is that something Frank has talked about forever? We work on changing formations within the game, changing formations within the game. And yet we haven't seen it uh, in the tournament, yet. Uh, which, again, is just bizarre to me. Why not? If you've spent all this time doing it and talking about it and the team needs something, why not at least try it? Um, that was what I expected going into the second half last night. Um, yeah. And it didn't actually change the shape. It, it played differently in the second half, and it was better. But the shape didn't change, and it was a little surprising because you could see by that point that there was no ability to threaten Columbus from the attack. Now, they did with just sheer numbers in the second half, and they started to create some of those overloads. But there's got to be – Without Joseph, there's got to be a thought to how can we put fear in the other team. And it's not just down to Pitti being a good player but not producing or Barco being a good player not producing enough right now. You've got to get them some other players. It can't be two guys. The system isn't doing anything to create those opportunities. And if it's not working in this shape, it's got to change to something else. I thought we would have seen that at some point in this tournament. What do you have upcoming, Jason? Uh, I'm on 92.9 The Game uh, today. I'm not sure when this is going to go out. I'll probably be on the air uh, hanging out with Andy Bunker for the next three days on the midday show from 10 to 2. Uh, that means soccer down here, overreaction Wednesday, has more time to uh, fire up the ammunition for that one. It's going to be at 6 o'clock tonight on twitch.tv slash soccer down here on soccerdownhere.net. And Mike Conti and I will have stoppage time on the 92.9 The Game Facebook page at 3 o'clock today. So plenty of time to continue yelling about what we all watched last night. All right. Uh, I've posted a few things. Uh, Frank uh, kind of saying that he can get this turned around in response to a few of the vociferous supporters saying he needs to be fired or resigned. Um, the game story is up from last night. The quote sheet from last night is up. I'm going to have a follow on what Frank and, and Brad Guzan and Brooks London said, what needs to happen uh, for this to get turned around. Um, I'm 
you know, I'm a little curious what the team is going to do. The pragmatist in me says if Darren Eels and Carlos Bocanegra wanted to make a change at manager, now would be the perfect time to do so. Um, not that I think that Frank should be let go or anything. I'm just saying if they wanted to, this would be it because it could be at least a month before they play again. You would have time to bring someone in, assuming they would want to come to the United States right now with everything going on. And that complicates a lot of things at the yeah. moment on the transfer side too. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think, you know, Darren doesn't act rashly. Uh, at the same time, he is all about the brand, as he should be. He's the president of the franchise. And when the brand starts to suffer, then he has to take notice. And I think it is fair to say right now that the brand is suffering a little bit. And part of the reason is, as Guzan pointed out last night, they set the bar so high uh, the previous couple of years. And now they're uh, not even remotely close to reaching it. Brad said last night about the second half performance is that, yeah, we played better, but it's still not even close to good uh, because we've set the bar so high. Um, it wasn't the Atlanta United of old, he said. And I think that's what everybody, uh, all the supporters want to see. Um, all right. That is going to wrap up this Southern Fried Soccer podcast. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Doug Robertson AJC on Facebook at Atlanta United News Now. I don't know when the next podcast will be because we don't know when the schedule is going to come out uh, for the remainder of the season after this tournament. So, Jason, one last question. Who's your pick to win this whole thing now? Man, um, I had said Philadelphia was the best team, in my opinion, from what I had seen on the field, uh, even though they finished second in their group. Columbus has to be in that conversation. Um, you can't discount Orlando either, but I'm going to go with Philadelphia. I'm going to go with Columbus. Um, I, I liked how they managed the game uh, yesterday. Um, they did what they needed to do. They got that early goal, and then they uh, you know, they, they locked down. Atlanta United had a couple of chances, including Anton Walk's late volley. But, again, I, I don't, don't put a lot of stock in that second half um, for a lot of reasons. Um, I hope you'll consider subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Please follow Jason. Please listen to SoccerDownHere.net because he and John and the rest of their team do fantastic work covering not just soccer in Atlanta, but soccer in the South, uh, soccer in this country, and soccer around the world. All right, Jason, thank you very much. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years and I am still amazed at how rich the city's black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that black people might want to know about. Like historically black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hey.